thank you everyone for uh, for joining me for this podcast on estimating opportunity cost-based cost-effectiveness threshold empirical approaches and the policy challenges for payers lovely to be here thank you so um it'd be great if we could just go in a circle and you can all introduce yourselves so we know what voices to look out so nancy you were chairing should we start with you certainly so i'm nancy divlin and i'm a professor of health economics at the university of melbourne Lovely. And Danny Palmock, Head of Medicines Analysis in NHS England, though um, what I may say may not represent the views of NHS England. Wonderful. Um, and my name is Freyleesk. I'm the one of the editors of the Evidence Base um, and I'll be helping on this conversation today. James? I'm James Lomas, a Research Fellow at the Centre for Health Economics at University of York. Fantastic. And Martin? And I'm Martin Hendrickson, uh, Associate Professor in Health Economics at Linköping University, Sweden. Wonderful. So a, a whole range of experiences, both in sort of Europe, Australia, mm. different experiences there. Um, so first off, um, opportunity-based cost-effectiveness. What is it? Who can give me the 30-second definition? Oh, it's always a tricky one, the sort of elevator <laughs> pitch, I guess. Um, well, basically, uh, okay, taking a sort of UK perspective for the time being to simplify things, um, there's a fixed budget available for healthcare. And when we're talking about new drugs and thinking about funding those, um, if we commit that funding to a new drug, there will have to be other services that are displaced in order for that to be funded from within the existing fixed budget. So what our work is trying to get at is, well, what are the health consequences of those services that are foregone? Um, and then once you've uh, thought about that, you can think about whether on net, you've improved population health by approving the new drug or actually worsened it because of those other things that have forgone being more influential in terms of health. Wow, so that sounds like we need a, a lot of data, a lot of high quality standardized data. Oh. Where is all that data gonna come from? You know, the health system generates a lot of data around both outcomes and costs. And I think what's really appealing about some of the new econometric techniques which are now being used in this field is that they don't require new data to be generated. In fact, they're, they're sort of designed to make use of data which are generated from the system already. Um, and that's enormously appealing because it means that you can also update uh, quite readily uh, the estimates to ensure that if there are changes either in the productivity the healthcare system or the cost structures or underlying epidemiology, then you can update the results and ensure that uh, you've got the best evidence that you can to inform the decisions. Mm -hmm. Maybe one can just add to that as well, that the alternative would be to not really knowing the value of what you, the opportunity cost of, of spending, which is probably where we were in uh, 10 years ago, and I think in Sweden at least, we more or less still are, as I talked about in my presentation, about the, the kind of interpretation of this, and I think decision makers just kind of picked one of those kind of so-called thresholds or opportunity cost estimates or whatever. They, I don't think they've even been so clear what they mean by that. And so I think even though we have some challenges with data and econometric methods, I think everything of that is better than an arbitrarily kind of view of what it is. 
Absolutely. Which was I, the alternative? Because as initial, um, I remember when I first arrived in the UK in 2001 and asking, where is this cost effectiveness threshold come from that NICE mm, is using? Yeah. And and back in those days, NICE was still saying, well, we don't use a threshold, you know, in our, in our decisions. And then eventually uh, they became a lot more transparent about that. And the sort of twenty to 30,000 threshold emerged. Uh, but, but when you drill down into where that came from, it, it sort of emerged from discussions around the committee mm-hmm. table. And, you know, um, in the absence of evidence, you, you do have to have some sort of decision rule. But it seems clear to me that that is better if it's evidence-based than just based on guesswork, basically. Yeah, Major advantage from my end. And it sparked the discussions at, at also in many jurisdictions that what we should kind of compare cost-effectiveness uh, against. And I, well, I cannot emphasise that enough, how important that is. Uh, mm. Okay, so we've talked about thresholds, we've talked about the, sort of the, the data challenges. Um, what other challenges are there in identifying these opportunity cost-based, cost-effectiveness numbers? Where are we, we pulling them out of? We had one that came up, uh, <laughs> a question that came up. The, the final question of the session, I think, is an important one. We need to be... We need to be humble about what we've estimated so far. I, I, I believe we see some convergence and that estimates seem to correspond from reasonably similar healthcare systems. That gives me some confidence. But obviously, if, if these estimates play such an important role in decision making, it of course matters if really they are, if it's 20,000 per quality or if it's actually 45,000 per quality. And, Obviously, we can derive a central estimate, but we, we should recognise the uncertainties associated around this. And I, I think there's there's more thought work to be done there, and mm-hmm. we are kind of thinking about it. But uh, that, that's one of the challenges mm-hmm. I see. Um, I think one of the issues is how you triangulate these estimates with um, other information. And one of the things I was suggesting was that in health systems where there is information on the cost per quality of other interventions, non-drug interventions, um, to have a look at, at what cost per quality they might be restricted at. So I give an example of um, osteoarthritis versus rheumatoid arthritis, where there's a treatment of drug treatment for rheumatoid arthritis which is funded at £30,000 per quality. But if you have osteoarthritis, and those drugs don't work for osteoarthritis, you have a hip replacement or a knee replacement, um, and they can be restricted um, waiting lists, waiting times. But also those who have access eventually, uh, it tends to be at £10,000 per quality. So that could just be a complete, you know, an isolated odd example, um, but it might be worth looking for other situations where we have that sort of information to to draw on and say, well, um, these estimates may not be too far um, away from what we observe. I think it's been interesting in the, the plenaries that I've been, a lot of people talk about quite a holistic approach to obviously the digitalization of healthcare, but I think in healthcare in general, um, how does that complicate matters when we're pulling in things like all the, the 
personal data that's being collected, nutritionists improving our diet and doing more exercise. How can we balance that with the very empirical metric driven way of measuring healthcare? Lots of challenges there. But I mean, I think one of the things that we touched on in our our workshop, which we've just held, was um, the way in which you think about what what benefits the healthcare system is aiming to create. So in health economics, we use this metric called the quality, the quality adjusted life year. And much of the work which we've done around uh, estimating opportunity cost is really focused on that. It's looking at uh, trying to find the cost of producing a quality adjusted life year in the healthcare system. And, and if that is what we want from a healthcare system, and it's the only thing we want from a healthcare system, then that makes a nice, a clear, simple picture. But the complication might be if there's lots of other things that the healthcare system is trying to do at the same time, which might be reducing inequality. It might be um, people feeling like they own their data. It, it may be to do with um, in, any other sort of element of value, with you know, improving productivity of the workforce, any number of things. And very recently, ISPOR has been talking a lot about value frameworks and all of the different elements of value um, that, that healthcare creates. And that creates a real complexity for thinking about opportunity cost then, because, you know, if you're thinking about health gain and health foregone in quality terms, that's fine. But if you're measuring benefit gained and foregone on a very complex set of criteria, then it becomes empirically a lot more challenging. <coughs> mm. And it also, it also seems as we're getting our understandings of diseases are changing and we're sort of getting smaller and smaller, like rare disease populations how can we use these metrics to decide where we're going to allocate that funding if you've got so many different rare diseases informed by many different things? Well, well, I had a few examples uh, of what's being done today, basically, where some, like Sweden, are by legislation actually obliged to to give some priority to those who are severely ill or perhaps even have a rare disease. One can question that if that's actually part of severity, but I think that's sort of it's been part of the need concept in Sweden that if you belong to a very rare group that, that may give you uh, worse possibilities to get health care actually that's why they were very heavily prioritized but that, again the kind of work that was presented today in the workshop just shows what that trade-off really is because mm. if we are to prioritize these people if we actually are to pay a lot more for their uh, for their health units then someone else will have to pay. And that's that's the beauty, in a sense, of the work that's been presented. Uncertain as it is, but it shows you that trade-off. If you are willing to forego five years lived in full health to gain one year lived in full health because that, that, that patient belongs to a prioritised group, at least we can be explicit about that. And I think that's the kind of key thing. That, that prioritisation is going to be hard, and that's going to be down to decision makers like myself and Danny and others perhaps do, but, but it, it, we cannot shy away from not making those decisions. And uh, uh, Can we just be explicit? I think it would be easier. Danny, anything to add on that one? Yeah, I, would, I mean, straying off the topic just slightly into rarity, which I, I think you're trying to do anyway when you get to personalised medicine and stuff like that and drink down to the specific gene type. Um, rare diseases aren't 
that rare. There's a lot of rare diseases. So that's point one, I think. And the second point is that no longer are treatments for rare diseases rare. So I, I was going to quote some statistics, but I'm not sure enough about them. But I think it would <laughs> something to check later. Um, FDA approvals, I think the um, treatments for or for rare or very rare diseases are now the majority. So wow. the fifty-two percent, I think, was the figure quoted. Um, so this business about rarity, precision, medicine, um, society, I think, is going to have to think again about well, what is their position and are they any different to um, treating bigger populations because we'll be treating a, a lot more of these going forward. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's going to be very hard. And another point to consider maybe is to talk about that trade-off between the health gained and the health forgone. Um, one thing that could possibly be the case is, yes, you've got health gain in a rare disease population and then there's health forgone across the population but actually some of that health will be for people who have rare diseases as well. So it's important basically that um, what we try and do is quantify these trade-offs as best as we can and treat, I, I suppose it's sort of like a symmetric treatment of how we're judging the new uh, technology against all the existing stuff that might be displaced as a result. Hmm. So we're probably not going to solve it just at this is for them. That's what, that's what that sounds like. Um, okay, so to just to, to round us off, you obviously all gave um, presentations at the, the workshop um, today. Um, starting with Martin, if you could sum up just your bit of the presentation in a few words, the key takeaways from what you presented, what would it be? Um, I think that would be that we've finally managed to actually estimate something in Sweden. So we now can have at least a clue about what how much health we displace when we take uh, healthcare resources out of the system. And then we can compare that with the health that we can actually gain from, from reallocating those resources to other treatments. So I think uh, that, that would be the key key message from my, from my presentation. And obviously that also includes the kind of equity efficiency trade-offs that we are wrestling with a lot by legislation in Sweden. And I think now we can make those more explicit at least. Fantastic. James? Uh, mine was more focused on the sort of uh, data analysis component, really. I tried to talk about how these things can be estimated and some of the assumptions that have to be made, limitations, and, but generally just providing a, quite a brief overview of the emerging literature on this topic. Fantastic. Danny? Uh, it's tricky, actually. Uh, probably two points. So one is when thinking about at what level to set the threshold, one maybe needs to think about dynamic effects, about what that impact might have on the pull through of new medicines. And it's very difficult for one particular country to influence everything that happens um, in the rest of the world. Um, but nevertheless, that country can have a think about the quantum of pull through that would be required if one decided to have higher thresholds. Um, and is that likely to happen? Um, or even more, more locally, it would be how many more products would you not have to say no to? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and if you reduced the threshold, obviously you might have to say no to some more products. Um, but that might not be so detrimental to health. In fact, that might still be beneficial to health, uh, depending on how many products you, you don't fund. Mm -hmm. So all that is, is, is quite complicated, but quite interesting. Um, but I think globally, I think payers, uh, well, society has to try and think again about, well, what is the optimal level of pricing taking account of uh, societal benefit? Fantastic. Anne, Nancy, would you like to round us off? Um, well, I think we've come an awfully long way with generating empirical evidence around the opportunity cost in healthcare, and that's great. We're in a much better place than we were a decade ago. I think the thing I still find interesting, where I'm not quite sure what the answer is, is that we will, we will always have uncertainty around those estimates, we'll always have disagreement between slightly different approaches and so on, and... Who, who is it that makes that judgment about what trade-offs we should be prepared to accept between these different sorts of um, decisions? Um, you know, is it the HTA bodies? Is it the payers? Um, is it a matter of going to the general public and getting to, them to do a sort of person trade-off exercise to get some empirical evidence about society's willingness to make these trade-offs? And I, so, so I think we, we, we're developing the science behind this, but I'm still not quite sure ultimately how the normative value judgment ends up being made. And then the other point that I would make is also, I think in healthcare systems generally, we're quite good at adding new technologies, which serves to push prices up and create these opportunity costs. And I think what we're not so good at doing is addressing disinvestment and identifying things that are poor value for money, possibly not even that effective, and we're very reluctant to take things out of the healthcare system. And if I was to make a plea for where health economics and outcomes research would go, it would it would be that we put a lot more effort into helping healthcare decision makers take things out of the system that don't work and aren't good value for money. Fantastic. Well, thank you all for that fascinating workshop and thanks all for, for talking to me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here.